Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Bee Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. Planning a vaginal birth after cesarean, otherwise known as a VBAC, in today's climate is extremely difficult. It takes a large amount of courage and determination as women can experience lack of support, negative language, dismissal, fear-mongering, coercion, and limitations from their healthcare providers. Women can also experience self-blame and a lot of doubt around their bodies and their ability to birth. Why so much stigma and negativity around VBACs? Why are they considered unsafe and what is the truth about them? Today, Dr. Hazel Keetle joins me to chat all things VBACs and also introduce the concept of obstetric violence, where her recent study found that one in 10 women experience obstetric violence. Dr. Keetle has over 25 years experience in midwifery and nursing. She is currently a lecturer of midwifery at Western Sydney University in Australia and describes herself as a feminist researcher. She also released her recent book, Birth After Caesarean, in September of last year and is not only brilliant, but it's inspiring women who want to birth vaginally after a caesarean all over. Dr. Keetle is one of those women making large strides in not only research, but in women's lives and what a privilege it is to have her in my presence today. Dr. Keetle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Amazing. So let's talk about VBACs. This is this is your forte. <laughs> and I read your book. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I've also not had a cesarean and obviously never attempted a VBAC. However, I was very close to one. So this still to me is close to home um, because this could have been my future. And it's something I often think about. And it's something I also talk to a lot of different women about as well. So what is a VBAC and why do women want them? So VBAC stands for vaginal birth after caesarean. And there's a few other terms that are used, just generally birth after caesarean or next birth after caesarean. But the, the vaginal birth after caesarean is specifically for women who are wishing to, to um, have a go at having a vaginal birth. Why is it important? Oh, well, it's a question I asked myself when I was planning a VBAC back in, you know, 2008. Um, and it was an a real instinct of mine to want to experience vaginal birth, experience what my body had been made to do. Um, and I'd been around birth a lot, both from my family, as a, a granny who was a midwife and myself as a midwife. I wondered if it was just that. But actually, when I asked women in my research, why, why a VBAC, the real desire to experience vaginal birth is very, very strong. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's within us. Uh, as as women and birth from people, I think it's just something that we, we really want to have 
an opportunity of doing. Um, and then when women have had a VBAC, then the answer's really easy. It was amazing. It was powerful. It was healing. It was what I was supposed to do. So, yeah, that's VBAC. Yeah, wow. I actually found um, a lot of the stories in your book incredibly inspiring and the fact that you know they had to jump through so many hurdles to get there I feel like that also that all that almost makes it like more empowering like the fact that like I went through that and I did it despite all of that I got there in the end absolutely absolutely and I think that's um so the the image on the front of the book of the woman with her fist in the air holding her baby um even before I had I wrote the book and it's based on my PhD work, but before I'd come to think what it would look like, you know, looking on Instagram and putting in the hashtag VBAC, that is the pose that women were doing even before I'd put that on my book. And so that's what inspired me. I like, I I sent photos of women doing that to my um, illustrator and saying, this is what it's got to be. Because it's, I think it is such an achievement. Not only is it, is it something that you've never potentially done before if you've only had cesareans and then you have this vaginal birth? But, yeah, it is such a fight. It really is. One of my first papers was called The Journey from Pain to Power, and that journey is really challenging. And all those stories that came in the book, and the storytelling was very important for me because it was women's stories that I used throughout my PhD, and so I really wanted women to share those stories, and I continue um, to share better birth after cesarean stories. Mm, yeah and yeah they continue to inspire for sure and don't stop that I, I'm also a big believer in having women's voices heard and having their story their stories shared and I I value the woman's voice that, such as yourself I know that you really do as well I wanted to ask because when we talk about VBACs obviously in line with that is the cesarean section rate so in Australia it's just under 37 percent and the VBAC rate in a 2020 report was only at 12% compared to other countries who had about a 55% success rate. Why are the cesarean rates so high in the first place? And is that the problem or what's the real issue here? And are we just bad at doing VBACs? (laughs) (laughs) So our rates of VBAC are low compared to other countries. 55 is kind of the highest that you can get. And Finland have have that. It's around the thirties in other places in Europe. And the US is 12% and we match that. And that often surprises audiences when I share that because we are often aware of the challenges that they have in the maternity system in, in the US. And to think that we would also have that in Australia is quite challenging. There has actually been some research that looked into across Europe, the high and the low VBAC rate countries. I must say their low was still double hours, um, but the low VBAC countries. And what, what was going on there it was a fantastic piece of work as part of the OptiBirth um, study. And they found actually it was down to attitude of the healthcare providers. And so in the countries where VBAC rates were higher, the attitude of the, of the healthcare providers and midwives and the doctors was that vaginal birth was the norm. And then therefore vaginal birth after cesarean was the norm. That's just what you did. I must say some of these countries are seeing a little bit of a decline on those rates, but that was the difference. And yet, in the low in the low VBAC rate countries, it was kind of worded in, in, in an interesting way. But it was it was the medical professionals were saying, well, it's kind of the woman's choice, but VBAC is very risky and an elective cesarean isn't. So it's really the thought of well, what is 
what is the norm and what is what is valued um, in our society and in, in our professions. So I think when we have such a low rate, such as 12%, the norm is to have a repeat cesarean and to go against that norm is why women really experience that battle and that difficult journey because they're trying to do something which although is just just trying to have a vaginal birth um, is they come across all this negativity and it's because the norm is to have an elective cesarean and the belief around those health providers is oh, well that's easier that's normal that's more predictable compared to an unpredictable vaginal birth. And it really looks at it on a real risk paradigm rather than actually what the woman wants and what the woman gets and the benefits that the woman gets when she actually has a better birth after cesarean. It's really this, would you say it's like a, a, like a core cultural belief almost when it comes to cesarean? So once a Caesar, always a Caesar. Like I, I remember that being told to me way before I had babies. And so before I even came into this world of motherhood and birth and all of that, that was just what was normal to me. And, oh, yeah, you've had a cesarean. You can never birth vaginally birth again. Oh, it's such a crazy um, statement because it's about 100 years out of date. Uh, wow. where really that came about when cesareans were very risky and they were the big longitudinal scars, like, you know, the zipper going up and down mm. the uterus. And that was the scar both on the um, abdomen wall and also on the uterine, on the uterus as well. And then it was a bit riskier. You know, it was, look, you know, they didn't keep really very good statistics back then, um, but there are higher VBAC rate, uh, higher uterine rupture rates for those longitudinal scars. But over about 100 years ago, we actually introduced the lower segment scar first on the uterus and then actually on the um, on the abdominal wall as well, which meant that that wasn't the case. Um, it's an area that um, doesn't get stretched as much. It's got great blood flow right at the bottom and it has a much better healing rate and a much lower uterine rupture rate. So really that should have gone out um, with the dinosaurs, but unfortunately it's stuck around and it is said so quickly and easily and that it sits in women's heads and it sits in doctor's heads, GP's heads and, and uh, in other healthcare professionals that you come up with, they're like, oh, why would you want to? And even if they're not saying that term, they're alluding to it. Like, yeah. oh, you know, why would you, why would you even want to do that? Um, and I see posts like that all the time on social media. I get them sent to me. I get women uh, messaging me with the same things. They just don't understand why I want to have a VBAC. They say, why would you even bother? So even if they're not saying that actual term, because it is incorrect, um, they're alluding to it. And then I think that just feeds into that term without further explanation on why it's not true. Yeah. So then what are the risks of VBAC then? Because we often hear the word uterine rupture and that's thrown around a lot and it's thrown around in, in a sense of that is going to happen to you and that's why you shouldn't have one. But what are the risks? What's the truth about the risks? Yeah, look, it's certainly not cause and effect. You know, you're not planning a VBAC and you will, you will then, your uterus will then explode. It's not kind of how it works. It's actually a very, very small risk. It is there. So uterine rupture is when um, the wall of the uterus just, just opens. And it can happen in a, in a uterus that hasn't had a cesarean or, or a previous scar. Um, it can happen through um, direct trauma. So something like a you know a car accident, a steering wheel, a, a seatbelt, a, a punch or a kick to the abdomen of, 
I hate to say it, that does sometimes happen to women. That can also cause uterine rupture. It might not. It doesn't mean it will, but it could cause that. But when women have had um, a cesarean, and that means that they've got this scar on the uterus, there is a slightly increased risk that during labor, when the uterus is um, contracting and, and stretching and under obviously a lot of, um, uh, a lot of structural work, um, that, that scar along the uterus could open. And it can open as a small window or it could open completely and that could be a complete rupture. Um, and it is usually you know, picked up, especially in, in hospitals and at home. It can be picked up with decreased fetal heart rates, abnormal pain, abnormal bleeding. Um, so that, you know, there are signs and symptoms that it's happening. Sometimes there are none and it just happens um, quite quickly. But the fact of it actually becoming catastrophic or having a really bad outcome is also very low in our high-income countries because we are good at monitoring and we are good at um, observing the woman and, and knowing when something is is going wrong. So the, the actual rates, uh, there was a very good study that came out of across Europe that looked at um, two and a half million births uh, in that in that 10 year period and looked at all the uterine rupture rates at that point. Um, and it was a 0.02% chance of it actually happening. Uh, so it it was very low. And then actually what they also did, which I thought was really helpful as a researcher, um, is they actually looked at the outcomes of those. And so from the, there were 740 women out of that two and a half million that actually had a uterine rupture after a previous cesarean. And um, 10% of those babies died, which also means it doesn't, that that's way past the, if you have a, VBAC, you will have uterine rupture and your baby will die. Like if you have a VBAC, there's a 0.02 chance of you having a uterine rupture and then there's a 10% chance of that group of your baby dying. So it really makes it quite a small amount. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen because there's not a 0% chance. Um, so it does happen and there are, will be women that have shared their stories. And in fact, even in the book, I have stories of women who've had uterine rupture and then gone on to have another baby after that. And they talk about that experience. So it's, yes, it can happen. It can happen to, to any woman um, who has a pregnancy. It is slightly higher rates for women planning, a um, women with a previous scar, but still those rates are very low and the outcomes are generally um, very, very good. Mm. I find when we talk about the death of a baby, everyone has, you know, a, a different uh, risk assessment, right? Like what you deem risk, I might deem differently, vice versa. This is different with every single individual. And, I, and this, this is why I also love woman-centered care and, you know, really centering the woman in her own personal needs, desires, expectations, etc. But when we talk about the death of a baby, and I find this is what scares women out of a VBAC and and a lot of the time it is language and terminology and the way that it's presented to them. But I just wonder if that is one of the, one of the reasons why the VBAC rate is so low. We hear, oh, your baby could die. And so then the conversation's done. Okay, it's a cesarean. Is this what, yeah, is there more to potentially, it? Potentially, um, it's hard to know exactly why our rate is as it is. But I do know mm -hmm. that every day women across Australia will be given what has been colloquially termed the dead baby card. Um, mm. And it is used to against women to help to coerce them to make the decision that the healthcare provider is 
most happy with. So, and that is, that is not right. It's actually a form of coercive control. We understand coercive control more in, um, in intimate partner violence uh, and challenging relationships. We know that, but actually it goes on in the medical and midwifery profession as well when they use the dead baby card. Now, I think there's a lot of unconscious bias that gets to gets the point of that individual using the dead baby card, maybe a fear of threat, a fear, a fear that they're going to get into trouble, a fear that the woman is making a decision that they're not happy with and therefore they're going to, like, you know, they bear the brunt of it if something goes wrong. Um, but it's, it gives the woman no place to go because when you then turn around and go, well, I'm okay with that, like how could you say that? When someone yeah. says to you, if you do this, if you make this decision, your baby will die, it's very difficult to turn around and go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Like, cause you're not, cause that's not fine. <laughs> cause that's why they use it. It's like the ultimate coercive control because where, mm. where do you go with that? But I am yet to find a woman and to care for a woman and to speak to a woman that's actually gone all the way through their pregnancy with the sole aim of hurting their baby. I just yeah. don't. So it's yeah. used in a, in a, in a very power and control way in our patriarchal medical system that we have in the in the hospital um to say you know what i think you should go for this and if you don't your baby will die and if you disagree with me what a bad mother you are yes where do you go with that it makes it very challenging so we have to change the culture within the system um as well as educating women and encouraging women and getting them to be confident and actually in the book i challenge women and say you know if you've got the kind of person that says that to you do you want them on your team is that the kind of person you want on your team? And I think women can make some ag- have some agency around choosing the right people that are going to be supporting them. But sometimes you don't get that opportunity. You don't have the resources to be able to make those choices. And so we do need to work on healthcare professionals as well and say, you know, you can't say that. You can't be doing that. That's actually coercive control. You've got to stop that. Even if that's what you firmly believe and you think this woman is making the wrong decision for her, you've got to have at your core that she wants the best for her and her baby and you're not the one going home to care for that baby she is so we need strong empowered women to become strong empowered mothers to do what is undoubtedly the hardest job in the world which is being a mum absolutely I find it interesting that risk with v-backs in particular there's a lot of um, scare tactics and fear-mongering then when we talk about the risks of cesarean, it's like viewed as like some sort of savior. <laughs> I know. It's like, and some women will never even hear it. Like yeah. they will be booked in for a cesarean and, and a repeat cesarean and they will never hear the risks of cesarean. Like, it, like it's just never going to happen. It is major abdominal surgery. And women actually are really smart. And especially women that have had a previous cesarean because guess what? They lived it. They've been there. They've yeah. done that. They know what it's like to have a cesarean. They may also have trauma um, and experiences of trauma through the labor and the birth. And they may choose a cesarean as their best birth. And that's completely okay. It's actually how mm-hmm. about how the woman feels about her decision being given all the options. Um, but I guess the focus in the book was about VBAC because women often want it but are not supported. And so then are not able to make the make the correct decision for themselves. Um, but yeah, we don't talk about it. Um, and so I did. Sorry, health professionals, I lifted the lid. And 
I put that in the book because if we support women to make informed decisions, how can we only give them information about one risk? We've got to be able to give a balanced opinion on both sides. Um, Mm. And it's challenging because some studies say this one has an increased blood loss and then some studies say this one has an increased blood loss. And so there's no hard and fast way to say this one's definitely going to give you this, this one's definitely going to give you this, and this outcome's definitely going to give you this. So we can only look at trends in the research um, and then it's really down to the woman's experience and what is it that you really want? What is it that you want to get out of this birth? What is it that you're hoping for? And then how can we work with you with that once you've been given all the information that we can that we have um, and then you make the decision that's best for you. So are there any VBAC myths you want to bust right now? <laughs> well, the first one I, when, when I saw, when I saw that question, I thought, oh, well, the once a cesarean, also always a cesarean. So definitely that one um, needs to go out the window. Um, I guess other VBAC myths, um, there's, there's some research and I didn't put it in the book because I, I don't doubt the way they did the research it was done well um but they didn't give the whole picture so there's um some research that's come out that says that if you have had a if you have a v-back compared to a repeat cesarean you um have higher rates of um uh, of third degree tears than other women that haven't had a cesarean right and so this kind of threat of you'll have a third degree tear or you could have a really bad tear is kind of pushes women as therefore you would want to have a cesarean well just to kind of give some information cesarean also does include um a a cut a surgical cut can result in pelvic adhesions which can be extremely painful Um, and and ongoing cesareans repeat cesareans make that worse as well as placental abnormalities and lots of other issues so it's not as if it's just your baby's just going to come out through magic there's still going to be an, an exit point um and what they don't focus or they don't identify in those studies is what was the birth position and the actions Mm. at the time of the baby coming out because we actually can then look at research around severe tearing and severe perineal tearing and we know there are things that can help it such as warm compresses on the perineum we know that reduces severe third degree and fourth degree tears Um, different birthing positions can help certainly getting off your off your back being upright allowing your pelvis slower breathing really breathing your baby down and sometimes it just happens and it is an area that that heals very well but the healthcare providers kind of go well that's a terrible thing to happen if that happened to you would you not have rather have had a cesarean and again go to the qualitative research go and actually ask women when that actually happened what do they find and i found some women yes they really thought it was was um you know, maybe they didn't make the right decision, but a lot of women said that was just a blip. I got to push my baby out of my vagina. Like, seriously, that's amazing. And that was a blip. I got a bit of a... In fact, I got a message this week that was exactly the same. A woman thanked me for her book, she, for my book. She'd read it. She'd made the choice to have a VBAC. And she um, baby came really quickly at the end. So she wasn't able to slow it down. I and mean, she did have a tear. And she goes, it was just a tear what I got was my feedback and that was so much better and I feel so empowered. So mm. I think it's us making or healthcare providers making judgments that that is a really terrible outcome and therefore you should have a cesarean instead. Um, instead of actually being more open about but what was happening at the time, were they putting warm compresses on the women? Were, did they have them in different birthing positions? Did they 
slow that breathing down at that time? Was there force pushing compared to, or coach pushing compared to intuitive pushing? All those things impact third degree tears. And if you're not going to give that information in your studies, I'm not going to include it in my book because it's not giving the full picture. Yeah. You're talking to the right woman here. I call myself um, a third degree tear survivor. (laughs) I've had two 3B tears. But I do understand as well, you know, I have had friends or family who have had severe tearing due to intervention, um, but then also didn't have adequate um, repairs on their tearing. And so that's caused more problems. So if anything, I'm probably grateful that I had um, healthcare providers who were skilled enough to um, help my body recover and repair in a way that it should um, versus someone who maybe didn't get that and so then they've opted for a repeat cesarean because never again would they want to live through that and but this I agree with you here when you talk about um, the individual needs of that woman and looking for a healthcare provider that will support you in your wants and your needs um, that that honestly makes a huge difference I had private midwifery led care for my first and my second but in my second and I had the same midwife because I wanted her to know you know, she knew what happened and she, yeah, and she knows yeah. what I don't want to happen now, you know? And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in that woman centered care and, and, and advocating in that way for not only yourself, but other women going through the same thing. But at the end of the day, being the woman's choice is, is the biggest factor in all of this, particularly if we talked about birth trauma and things, sorry, I've just gone on a huge ramble now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And it's important to hear stories though, because, you know, we, and I think, you know, women are always told that, you know, well, if, you, if you've had this previous tear or, you know, choose this over this because you could, you could tear and there are these studies that show you've got a slightly increased rate of, of tearing. It's, you know, it's, it's just digging down a bit deeper and going, well, what else was going on? Some mm. women will tear. Some babies will come very fast or will come with their hand on their head or, you know, some things you can't, you know, you can't, you can't change. But there are also a lot of things that we do to potentially impact that in a negative way uh, and and you know they need to be open about it so, mm. rather than just saying if you go for a v-back you, you've got a higher rate of tearing than women that haven't had a previous cesarean but why like I wanted more mm. whys I'm a big knowledge seeker and so when I read a paper and I'm like well I've got more whys than answers now then you didn't give me all the information I needed and um, so mm. that's why I kind of don't really focus. That's kind of a myth that not that I want to bust that myth. I would just want to dig deeper into that myth and to not just mm. take that at face value. Mm. So then what would you say to someone who wants a VBAC, but they have been scared out of it? Um, uh, look, I, that's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, it's, a question. it's a good question. I like that one. Um, I think it's, I think it's about getting the right people around you. Um, mm. And digging, just just reading a little bit more, learning a little bit more about it. And if you want it, but you've been scared out of it, then what is it that scared you? Like, what were the comments that were said? Looking at those comments, were they actually really quite nasty, coercive ones? Were they evidence-based? And really a, a theme that came through all of the research that I've done from my master's through to PhD, even now with a birth experience study, is that knowledge is power. And women, we need to be able to get that knowledge because then when we're up against um, uh, healthcare providers that are maybe using some negative language, we need to really understand where have they come from with that, you know, be be prepared. Certainly, um, 
getting getting a team around you that are going to help you with that so read yourself grab a copy of my book get onto the peer support pages that are available through social media there's a massive one in australia for vback support there's state specific ones there's so many different ones out there if you want to pay if you're on one group and then you, the language is not very positive then that's not the one for you um get on one where you're going to have women that are supporting you that you can read their stories that they've or they've gone through this as well um that's really important to have that boostering around you um but then also pick your team so this if if you're scared if you've got someone who's scaremongering you is that the person that you want to support you through your labor and birth really like i don't want someone that i'm scared of or that is making me feel scared take me through such an important life event we only do this a few times you know some women do more um but most of us only do this a few times in our life we need to really invest in it invest in it with our time our emotions and our decisions so that you feel that you've been the most supported person through that uh, and so look at who else can support you can you find a doula can you find a student midwife you know we've getting some really good data coming out of some big studies that um myself and professor Hannah Darling are on um that really show the benefit of having a student midwife because they actually in Australia have to follow at least 10 women throughout their entire course and some courses are only 16 months and some of them are 3 years depending what pathway they're going on and they love it it's the best part about their course they usually take on way more than they need um and they're there in all these different hospitals saying who can i follow and they love following through women who are planning a vback i know because i get so many messages from them so um yeah who can be on your team that's a great member to have on your team they've got some knowledge but they're actually there as observers as well mm-hmm. so they're there to support you um looking for continuity of care you know continuity of care is just so important to have that relationship based care and my you know my survey showed that actually continuity of care with a midwife meant women who were planning a vback felt more in control had more confidence um had a more supportive relationship with their healthcare provider and were more likely to be active in labor and they're all the really important things that you want to be able to do which is why the book is separated into those different chapters to really explore what can you do for your control confidence relationship and active labor when in terms of continuity of care i i know it is very difficult i know that women don't know that they can change their healthcare provider in pregnancy that's um really tricky i find for women to not only do but understand that they can do um but I had a question that popped into my head when you were saying that. Oh, can you, do you know why midwifery-led continuity of care has better outcomes than alternate models? Well, you know, there has been research that's looked at this and trying to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And certainly being a midwife myself, you could say I'm a little bit biased. And, I'm <laughs> midwife, and so I come from a lineage of midwives. So, yeah, you know, I'm midwifery-focused. Um, I'm ashamedly. And there's a big difference in the way that midwives and doctors are trained. And doctors are absolutely fantastic and we need them. And I am glad that in my, when I was doing clinical practice, that I was able to refer to extremely highly skilled um, medical professionals when I needed to and when women needed to be referred. And sometimes they would have a consult and then we'd come up with a collaboration agreement and they'd come back to my care. And sometimes they needed emergencies and they needed people to step in and take over and i am glad that that is there i am so glad that is there 
but they are very good at that high risk stuff, very good at that acute stuff, very good at surgery. I've never had a desire to be a surgeon. So they are very good surgeons, but they come from a um, philosophy of medicine and illness. And there are things wrong with people and risk and trying to fix those issues. And midwifery doesn't. We come from a very different background. We're actually one of the oldest professions. If you look at religious scripts, such as the Bible, they mention um, prostitutes and midwives. And I think prefer because they're <laughs> prostitutes, they probably need midwives. So, you know, it is one of the oldest professions out there. All of our traditional societies had um, midwives in their communities that were called different names, but there were wise women in, in these in these traditional communities um, that had the knowledge. And unfortunately, and certainly one of the things that happened in Australia is a lot of that knowledge was taken away by targeting the midwives in First Nations um, villages and, and, or, or um, locations. So we know they're actually really important um, because they have, we have so much knowledge. We come from a background of community, of more primary healthcare, and that birth is normal and birth is a normal life and event. And sometimes there are complications. And when they have complications, we need to work alongside other healthcare professionals at that point. But we're also extremely good at picking that up. But as a profession, we're based in supporting women from the very beginning of pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, all the way through to six weeks um, plus post having your baby. Um, we are the keepers of normal birth. And that is why I think it's so important in those midwifery constitutive care relationships. We also break down some of that patriarchy because if we look at a patriarchy of, of hospitals, you know, you've got your managers, your policy makers, you've got your doctors, come down the ladder a fair bit, allied health professionals kind of fit in there. You've got nurses, you've got midwives, and right down the bottom are patients or women or clients as we call them. So we can actually break that down by doing continuity of care with a midwife because we're actually pretty low down there anyway. So then we bring it to a level playing field. And we often work in that feminist framework where it's about advocacy. It's about listening to women and it's being with them on their journey and not taking credit for it. You don't hear midwives say after birth, you were so lucky I was here. But you do hear that from other professionals. We actually want women to be able to go, I did this. Maybe a thank you for helping me is fine, but that the woman did this. And then we feel that we've done the right job, that we've taken women on that journey and they've managed to get the birth um, and the outcome and become this amazing um, mother, which is so difficult to be, but they, we support them on that journey as well. We don't drop them once the baby is out. We'll then care during that time. And that's what constitutive care with the midwife really does. Mm. I think that's it. It almost makes the journey more special having that relationship with your healthcare provider coming to visit you in your home, in the comfort of your own home. It's far less clinical and sterile and you're able to bond and, you know, this person is going to be a part of a transformational experience. You're going to want a relationship with this person. <laughs> and then beyond the birth, I was so particularly having the severity of tears that I did, but I was so grateful that I had that continuity of care for the six weeks after. And I, I think if I didn't have that and I had the, the standard one or two um, postnatal visits, I I don't think I would have coped as well as I did. So yeah, I am a huge yeah. advocate for continuity of care. I, I see the benefits massively. I absolutely, um, if I had a dream, and I say this to my students, 
um, because I do teach um, midwifery in both the undergraduate and postgraduate place, I tell them that if I had a dream, you would all experience continuity of care at some point as a midwife. Because I think it changes you as a midwife. There are amazing midwives out there that haven't done content. I'm not, I'm not dissing them at all. But I think if we're looking to future-proof our next generation of midwives, we really need to bring in continuity of care as part of their working life. It doesn't need to be their entire working life. But it really, until you've done it, until you've really walked alongside, and sometimes those relationships don't work out. And you need to experience that as a midwife too. Yes. You know, it's human relationships and you need to be able to grow as a human when it doesn't work out as much as it does when it when it does work out. So that would be a bit of a dream for my for me is that everybody at some point has a rotation or stays in the continuity of care model. And we are certainly getting a lot more continuity of care models coming up around Australia. There's not enough of them. And what the what managers need to do, if you're listening, you need to expand your service. If it's got to a point where a woman has to pee on a stick and get a positive result and then ring up the hospital to get into the MGP program, that's yeah. not the woman's fault. That's because you that's a supply and demand issue. Let's use your marketing yeah. brain here, right? Let's be business people. That's a supply and demand issue. Get more midwives in. Don't just say, mm. oh, it's a problem you can't get in. Get more midwives into that program so that women don't have to book in at the first minute they know. Because so many women might not might not know about it until later on and then they really need it and they can't get in. I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that attracted me to you in the first place, and also I just love, I think in general, was that the fact that you are a feminist researcher and you use this feminist lens and framework within your research, but also within your practice by the sounds of it as well. Why do you think this is necessary when researching, educating and talking about childbirth? Well, midwifery is the ultimate feminist job really (laughs) because we are walking alongside women when they are going through this transformative process from especially if this is their first baby or even if it's their fifth this process of being a mother there's a term now matricense that changing from um, being a woman into a mother is such a major um, life event that as midwives we support that but we also see all sorts of women and so we see women that can educate for themselves can access the knowledge can advocate can um hire private midwives can do all this stuff but then we actually also look after women and and walk alongside women that don't have those resources either and that are maybe um, disempowered even before they come to the maternity service so you know there could be intimate partner violence going on in the relationship. Um, There could be cultural differences. There could be women from First Nations communities. There could be so many different things that actually um, is why um, intersectional feminism as well is really important is that we have to realise that not every woman's journey is the same Mm. and that women come through maternity with a lot of, um, with all of their previous life experience plus anything else that they bring. So you know, not speaking English, um, coming from um, a migrant or refugee background. There were so many different things. And we need to then at that point, we actually need as midwives to elevate those voices and to step in and to be actually able to go, you deserve respectful maternity care too. Um, And 
Yeah, and I think feminism really goes alongside with that. Another thing that's really important in feminism um, and feminist research is the um, point of reflexivity. And so feminist research always talks about the fact that you need to think about who are you and what are you bringing to the research. Mm. And you write about it. I wrote about it in both my theses uh, really quite strongly about the point of reflexivity. And so I knew with my master's honours, which is when I did research on women who'd had a feedback at home and I interviewed them. So I had to be reflective and be um, uh, and to kind of state my bias. So I was a midwife who supported women having VBAC at home. Uh, but I was also a woman who had planned two home births and one of them being a, a VBAC at home. Both were in the hospital. So I, I brought that. And actually, rather than that being a, um, a, a negative bias, it actually meant I connected with women because then they understood my story. And I think that's just, I did that at the very beginning of my research career and, um, and I've just kept that going. That even all to the point, even to the point of when I designed the VBAC survey, the national survey, I got um, potential participants, so people who would be doing the survey, to actually do focus groups with me online, even pre-COVID, before Zoom was fancy. And, uh, and, I, and I did it in the day and at night because some would be able to do it during the day because the kids are at school. Some would be able to do it at night when they've got the kids have gone to bed. So I did different time, time zones. Yeah. And then I um, went through every single question and said, what, do you, what does this mean for you? What is this saying to you? Because I might be using my research terminology and making it sound uh, with my midwifery terminology as well. I needed to speak to women. So all through the research design, um, it's important to have, we've got terms for it now, consumer engagement, um, but I didn't. I was like, I just want women to test this survey and actually come <laughs> online and tell me what they're thinking. And it changed certain questions. It added more questions. It added more options to questions. But I know then when that survey went out, it had already been checked. And a lot of that survey was then used in the birth experience survey. So I also knew at that point that it had been checked at that former level so yeah the feminist principles are really important to me I am I'm a I'm a proud feminist and I'm a proud midwife and I think they sit together very easily in the first subject of um the Bachelor of Midwifery and I teach the first years in their first subject midwifery subject I love it we talk about feminism um Professor Hannah Darling comes in and does a whole session about politics and feminism and and midwifery and the media and they get that from the very beginning that Mm. this is not a dirty word it's not mm. a dirty word. It's not putting women above men. And it's actually not excluding birthing people either. It's actually mm. just bringing it together and trying to make sure that that people get a fair go. And yet we're aware of the patriarchal um, um, systems that are there. And then we support those that actually make that tumble down. Mm. I want to ask you about your personal experiences in birth and how you feel about the maternity system now because when I read your stories and I would say that they're not in a lot of detail I found them fairly brief but you you're very to the point um but your first birth changed the trajectory of your life in terms of your interests and your career and your research and things how do you feel about the maternity system now reflecting on your experience um look i i think they certainly did challenge me in the fact that i i experienced what 
I now know so many women experience, but it wasn't verbalized back then. It wasn't spoken mm. about. Um, and, you know, I, I lost a lot of trust. Um, I did have a private midwife for my first and I lost trust in her. Um, I, I, I then, um, you know, years later, especially now that I've, I'm done work on obstetric violence, I realized that I was given an unconsented vaginal examination in theater. Um, and that actually impacted me quite a few years later when I reflected on that and realized how on that happened. That then re-triggered sexual assaults that I had experienced. So it, it really did, I think it gave me a, a good viewpoint. And after my, after my VBAC, where I felt bloody amazing, like I felt so healed, like all the drama, all the issues I'd had after my cesarean, my unplanned cesarean, and, you know, I, had, I, I wasn't diagnosed with postnatal depression, but I know that I, that's probably because I was so stubborn I wouldn't go anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, and midwives and nurses, we're, all, we're the worst patients out there. So uh, at looking after ourselves. So I, I was really in a, in a bad space um, with, with my emotional health, um, my physical health. And I've been so sick. That first pregnancy, like, you know, pneumonia and then an, um, and then an unplanned cesarean and then endometritis, like, all within, a, all within a month, I had a phobia of cannulas, even though I used to put them in women. Like, I, it, wow. I was just really, really sick. And I was worried when I got pregnant so quickly, which was not the plan, when I got pregnant so quickly, like, how could I do this? I was even considering why, why would I be doing this at this time? But it was a very, like, it was a, it was a quick but very wanted pregnancy. And um, after, I had, after I pushed out of my vagina and the battle that I had to go through to do that, I just felt so healed. I just felt like this is what it was supposed to be. But I did reflect and go, you know what? No one really supported me. I mm. had to do all that by myself and I've got the knowledge to be able to do it. And I'm a pain in the ass, so I was able to do it. Um, and I came away from that with the question of how does any other woman in Australia have a VBAC? And then others at the hospital would say, oh, we have VBACs all the time. Yet when I was on the postnatal ward with my baby, and I only stayed there less than 24 hours, um, with my baby, there were people coming in, like like midwives, student midwives coming in, like staring at me as if I was in the zoo, like and I was, a, I was an exhibit in the zoo. And I'm like, what's going on? Wow. <gasps> You're the woman that had a VBAC with a short interval. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. So the news was getting around. So I thought if it was that common, then they wouldn't be coming in, like, you know, coming to stare at me in my postnatal room. So mm. <laughs> there was obviously more to it. And that's really what led me on my journey. I just thought if, if I felt so good, am I the only one that felt so good? Is it just because I'm a birth nerd and a midwife? Or do other women feel amazing afterwards? And secondly, how on earth does any other woman get this in, in Australia? Because I was constantly attacked during labour, told I was too quiet, told I was too loud, told that four o'clock on the dot we're taking you for a cesarean and and I know what it's like to not really be able to speak much. Apparently I've got a look that could kill, my husband said at one point when a doctor <laughs> came in and said something and I just kind of, I was actually, I remember the moment and I was trying to, I was like thinking going, the hell does she mean and what she said to me she goes I'm worried that you know you might not you'll be one of those kind of women that sucks the baby back up rather than pushes her pushes the baby out and the doctor said that to me and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed I wasn't in the bed I was sitting on the edge and I was like looking at her going, what the hell <laughs> I was trying to imagine in, in in my limited midwifery career at that point how many times had I seen a woman suck a baby up 
um because i just hadn't and i was just like anyway the, she scurried out the room and my husband said if looks could kill she'd be dead but it, i wasn't trying to say i mean look i was just <laughs> i was just really puzzled by the thought that i could maybe suck my baby up instead um and her time of birth was four o'clock on the dot the, the time that they said they were going to take me to theaters i pushed her out of my vagina and that's her time of birth so it was yeah. you know it, it gave me a really good insight about VBAC and how important it is, but it made me that knowledge seeker again. It really wanted me to find out, do other women experience this? Do they feel as good? But also, did they have to fight? And unfortunately, 14 and a half years later, um, I don't think it's got any better. I think in some areas, such as continuity of care with the midwife, I think it has got better. In other areas, I don't think it has. The same stories are coming out constantly. And so, yeah, we've We've got, we've still got a big battle on our hands. Yeah. I find that's often a frustration of mine, um, particularly in maternity care, is that there's no real crossover in research and practice. It's like, you know, even in my personal studies, oh my gosh, we have so much evidence. And then I continue to hear stories of like a woman who would birth a week ago and I'd be like, what? But we, we know that we shouldn't be doing that. Why are we still doing that? Like it's a real frustration. And w- women often will find this information out later and be like, I don't understand why this was done to me. I don't understand why I was told. When we have the evidence, it's almost like uh, I heard the term medical ritual. So like if we were going to talk about directed pushing, episiotomies, things like that, things that aren't necessarily evidence-based but are widely practiced a lot, of, a lot of women later on find out that fact and are really angry. Or even their unplanned cesarean that wasn't actually an emergency and wasn't evidence-based and mm-hmm. that they actually could have pushed their baby out of their vagina. And the anger that women feel about this later. And it's actually turning not only women away from the maternity system, but I see midwives walking away from mm-hmm. the maternity system. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there an answer to this? Like you're in research. Why are they not crossing over? <laughs> well, you know, there's, there has been this thought that there's like a 10 year gap between, um, you know, research being done and then research coming into mm-hmm. practice. I'd like to think that that has the potential to be shorter, especially now with, with the, the internet and social media, we're able to get our research out there much easier. I think it comes down to, well, like, you know, quite a few things. It's called translation into practice. It's it's a tricky area. I think as researchers, we have a responsibility to get our research out there. So actually, we have a responsibility to speak to people like you. We have a responsibility mm-hmm. to go to conferences and also to try as much as we can to make our work, our published work, open access. So it's mm-hmm. not only those who have subscriptions such as university libraries and, and health authorities um, to have access to the data, but that data is available to everyone. And, and I'm happy to say that the, the majority of my papers have been open access. Um, and recently, actually, our, our universities as a whole across Australia have actually tried to increase that a bit more for us all because mm. we, it costs money for something to become yes. open access. Um, so like that, we've got that responsibility. We've also got that responsibility to then go out to the community and share it. Um, and get it to both women, to consumers, and to um, consumer organisations, and then also to the clinicians as well, and to challenge them to go, well, uh, you know, how how are you going to change your practice? So certainly with um, my VBAC work, you know, I didn't want to just 
do my publications, show off my PhD and go, well, that's it. And I looked around and there wasn't anything published. You know, there was no no book that really went into the detail that I did, plus having stories in there. So I thought, well, this can be knowledge. This can be a way of translating my practice, my, my PhD work into a book for women, but also for midwives. And I've been on the back of the book coming out, I've actually been traveling Australia doing workshops with midwives and doulas and birth workers and whoever wants to come along really um, on how do you then translate the findings in the book, so the four Mm. factors, into supporting women. So I've been doing that, traveling around. Um, I wrote for the Australian College of Midwives. They asked me to write an e-learning package, which um, is free for, for members of the ACM and only a small amount, like $30 or $35, something for, for people who are not members of the ACM to access on their platform. And, and that's like a, an hour plus of e-learning to go through the same information, the, the information from the book, but aimed at how do you support women. So I think as researchers, we've got to kind of think outside the square on how we do that. But then it also comes to um, individual practitioners. You've got to keep up to date. You know, if you if you feel that you need to update your knowledge, then go and find that information. We've started a new journal here in Australia called the Practicing Midwife Australia. That's actually come from the Practicing Midwife UK and and they're our parent company. We've started over here. And the whole aim is actually to bring practices, uh, good practices, good models of care and good research into readable chunks for birth workers, doulas, for midwives, um, so that you're not having to read like a 20 page research article. You could just read a shorter version and I'm one of the co-editors and chiefs for for that and my my um my partner is uh Renee Coleman of First Nations and midwife academic and we run that together and so you know get that find your information um Mm -hmm. and keep yourself updated and then challenge you know challenge it why are you just always doing the norm um Mm -hmm. listen to women's stories it's an, an important part that's why they're you know they're in the book but also Listen to podcasts of women sharing their birth stories and why VBAC is important or, or why, you know, whatever type of birth experience is, is important for them. Um, for you to, when you're, when you're entrenched in a system that you just see risk all the time and you don't really have time to find out how women feel about it, then you need to remove for a while, go listen to some important stories, read some stories, watch some stories, mm. and then bring that back to your practice and go, well, actually... I recently read this article or this qualitative study or this podcast I listened to and a woman found this procedure really quite damaging. So why are we doing this? Mm. So look, it, it does take a long time, but I actually think we potentially can speed that up by um, researchers having a real real um, concerted effort to get their work out there in lots of different ways, videos, podcasts, you know, however, social media pages, just be creative and give it a go. It's not, it's scary, but it's also fun. Um, mm. And um, and for practitioners to go, you know what, I need to find out what the what women are actually feeling about these things that we're doing to them. I wonder, you know, I think, I generally think that healthcare providers and individuals, researchers working in this space are doing their best and are trying their hardest and they are doing the work. And I often find the barrier being the hospital policy. And that's a barrier for midwives as well as the women who are birthing and the people who are birthing. Isn't this what should be 
addressed when in terms of the evidence we have changing that well policies and guidelines have their role i mean they they do ensure that a good standard of care is given um across the board but sometimes they're taken to be the 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 law and they're not their Mm. policies and their guidelines what is important is when these policies and guidelines are written that they do include women's experiences as well as the data. I think it's really important. And often they're not, you know, we teach our students how to critique policies um, and there's some good guidelines on how to critique policies. And often there's been no consumer involvement. There's been no qualitative studies. It's just been, these are the facts. And someone has often cut, cut and pasted one that was five years old and just cut and pasted and said, this is the new one. So policy writers need to actually be on the ball to actually be putting in the hard work of doing an updated literature review and making sure that that has the voices of the people who are involved and get them involved actually get get consumers on your policy writing boards and uh, consumer organizations and representatives from them to come and actually look at those policies and go well you know you're actually suggesting this and and this is really not very favorable for for women because of X, Y, and Z. They're very smart <laughs> and very mm. knowledgeable um, in terms of consumer organisations in Australia. So I think it's it, there is also a job for policy writers. Um, I think it's a shame when someone in a in a role has just been given a whole bunch of policies and told to update them and you've got like X amount of time to do it so you don't actually have time to really um, develop it. But um, I do know that, you know, working with New South Wales Health, for example, their, their midwifery and nursing policy, um, area they're, they're trying to look at how to do things differently and I think that's important because we yeah. need the voices of who we're actually going to be impacting um, and you know to understand that we do have a risk framework and that's important but it's also important to bring in how women feel about the procedures and I think one of the biggest things that we've got that really um, and if you want to see how quick does research get to practice we only have to look at the recent changes to um induction of labor um, at, at term rather than waiting to 42 two weeks, you know, <laughs> that came in really quickly. But you know what was missing in that? It was actually missing how women felt about induction and what their experiences were. And certainly in the birth experience study, we did ask that. We've asked them, you know, what, who made the decision to have an induction of labor? And we've explored that. And we've actually then, you know, we've got in all of our open-ended questions, we've got a lot of women who talk about birth trauma, obstetric violence, um, and um, um, like things that they're really concerned about all include induction of labour. So we actually have got some data that we will look at publishing about actually what it's like for women to have an induction. It jumped into policy really quickly. Oh, I bet. <laughs> um, and inductions are like the bread and butter of a, of a um, midwife on a delivery ward um, in the morning. Everyone's just been induced. Um, and it's what our students see all the time. But who's actually asked a woman how she feels about that induction? Um, and, uh, you know, why isn't that included in the policy? I wanted to ask you now about your recent research study, which I will put a link in the show notes for because it is open access and anyone can go and have a read. But that was on obstetric violence. Now, this is a fairly new term. And I actually wrote in like my family chat, like, oh, I'm so excited about this interview I have tomorrow. Like, I'm just sharing some exciting news with you. And like, I posted about it and that I was interviewing you about VBACs and it's obstetric violence. And I had my brother-in-law and he was like, 
is what's obstetric violence is that like a new terminology for birth interventions (laughs) anyway it made me laugh he's not had babies he's never seen a birth you know (laughs) um but it made me laugh but I'm like yeah people in the general public don't actually know what this term is and they don't know what it is so can you tell us Sure. So um, we did this research as part of the birth experience study, which I'm um, the lead researcher on uh, alongside Professor Hannah Darling. And so this study went out in 2021 to women in Australia who'd had a baby in the last five years. And um, as we mentioned before about co-design, this was co-designed to the letter. In the fact that we had a consumer reference group of um, individual representatives from 10 consumer and professional organizations help design um, the, the study and in, in still part of the study. And from the consumer reference group, what came up is that they actually wanted a question on obstetric violence. We hadn't put that in any of our surveys before. So we did, and we used a definition um, which uh, is, I haven't got the slide in front of me, but is disrespect and abuse um, by a healthcare professional to uh, the body or reproductive choices um, of a woman during that obstetric time, so pregnancy, labour and birth and postnatally. And so we put that definition, we put a definition in with did you experience obstetric violence? And we had yes, maybe and no. Um, and we put the maybe in there because just like you said, like it's not a recognised term. Um, so they had the definition, they had a maybe. And then if they said yes or maybe, um, then they got the option to share their story. And so over 900 women said yes or maybe, um, and 626 women left comments. So we then analysed those comments in a um, style called content analysis, and that they're the comments that are in that paper. Um, and so we so um, we can get more to the findings. So what obstetric violence actually is, and it's not much of a new term internationally. So um, obstetric violence has actually been legislated against in seven of the 11 Latin American countries. And that started with Argentina in 2009, followed very quickly by Venezuela and then a multitude of others after that. And, you know, in in Latin America at the time, as it is still now, it's a very obstetric-led. But if you look up the term obstetric in the dictionary, it just means that whole time of pregnancy, labour and birth and postnatal. That's kind of what that means. Mm. It's just that... We then use that term with obstetricians, so people think it's just about doctors. It's actually not. It's a, it can be perpetrated by any healthcare provider um, in the maternity care space. So midwives, it could be recovery nurses, it could be um, doctors, it could be GPs. You know, there can be a whole range of healthcare providers and allied healthcare providers who you see during that time. It's most commonly because it's often to do with that labour and birth time, midwives and doctors that are that I mentioned. Um, so that's really what obstetric violence means, but it, it is actually recognised by the United Nations as a form of gendered violence, and that's because it impacts women disproportionately or because they are women. So, you know, women um, are, are the individuals that go through the pregnancy and labour and birth and pregnancy and postnatal and uh, some birthing people too. So there is, um, that's really what obstetric violence means is any any violence um towards women but then what the interesting thing that we did in our study was women actually then described it so then we were able to say well this is what obstetric violence means for women and mm-hmm. so we found that there were three main categories one was i felt dehumanized and so that really focused on the um women feeling like they were just a number or just a vessel carrying a baby 
that they actually weren't important. It was all about getting the baby out. Didn't matter what happened to the woman. And so there's that dehumanization, um, not being like spoken to quite disrespectfully as well. Then there was, I felt powerless. And that brought in that kind of coercive control that you should do this or your baby will die. That takes away, that completely just takes away any power from the woman and any agency from the woman. Um, and then the other, um, the other category or main category was I felt violated. And this was probably the hardest category to read uh, in the paper because this actually um, had three subcategories. One was physical abuse. And so that could be things like um, the grabbing of breasts quite roughly when, when, when a woman's trying to breastfeed and, and, and ask for help and someone grabs the breasts quite, quite roughly in any way. Um, rough fundal rubs. So once the baby has been born and, um, you know, we want the uterus to contract down and if it doesn't, then you can have increased bleeding. And so midwives and doctors often use this thing called a fundal rub, which is getting onto the, to where the uterus is and just rubbing it. You don't actually have to be trying to reach the spine to do that. Yet, <laughs> I've seen it and it can be done mm. really rough as if there's no woman attached to this. This is just like some kind of plastic model that you are doing um, a really rough rub on. And often women, even if they've been given consent and information all the way through, at that point haven't been told what, what is it that they're doing. Like, why are you doing that? Please stop. And then it not stopping. Um, and yeah. I think there's always time for informed consent and for kindness. So there could be that. And then the other two categories were one, there's a whole subcategory on episiotomies uh, and the, the challenge of episiotomies, not getting consent for episiotomies, being mm. threatened with episiotomies. Like one of the comments was, you know, a doctor standing at the end of the bed, like, like snapping the scissors as a threat, you know, and just waiting to do it or not giving, not giving um, anesthetic before it or saying that they had and then didn't and then did it anyway. Um, and doing it when a woman said no. Uh, so there was a physiognomies and the impact that had. And then I think for for most of us, I think the one that's the most challenging is um, the uh, vaginal examinations. So all the comments around vaginal examinations. And they can be a routine, uh, consensual, respectful internal procedure, or they can actually be a sexual assault. And I say that because I analysed all the words that were used um, in that category and they were words that you would expect to hear in a sexual assault, um, mm. such as penetrate, shoved, um, and a whole list of other, and I've listed them all in the paper, um, all the different words that are in there. And so the paper is full of quotes. Those quotes are quite challenging to read. Um, but they are important for um, for us to know. They're important for, to give women a voice, to be able to say this is happening. And this isn't mm -hmm. 20, 30 years ago. Some of these were from women that, that birthed in 2021 and then they did the survey straight away. And so this isn't, you know, this isn't archaic. And this also is happening here. So the other research that's been done on obstetric bias and probably why we don't really know about it so much in Australia is that a lot of it's been done in low and middle income countries. And I think, uh, I might be out of turn here, but I think there's a little bit of colonial thought here. You know, it happens over there. It happens mm. over there where they don't have the right systems, they don't have the right resources, and so they, they're more prone to, to experiencing obstetric violence. And there may well be higher rates of obstetric violence, but I think there's been a kind of not on my patch, not on our turf. It doesn't yeah. happen here. And, um, yeah, 
I think that's why we've got a little bit of criticism from it, because we've actually lifted the lid and say it does happen here. From our survey, one in 10 women experience obstetric violence. And I think that's lower than, uh, than it actually is. And it's important and we need to know about it. We need to act on it um, from a multitude of different levels. Um, but I think what can be challenging for women when they hear about this on a podcast like this is actually reflecting and going, oh, I think I may have experienced that. And then yes. the aftermath that then causes them. So just for anyone listening right now, like, you know, I, I, I hear you, you, you may well have experienced it. Um, feel free to reach out to the, read the paper to see if you, if you relate to any of that information, but then also really get some help. And there are some great helplines out there like Panda and Bidget and some good organizations out there to help you if you, because this can be re-triggering of previous trauma as well. Absolutely. I, I, before I get to that bit, I was interested to know some of the criticisms you've received. <laughs> well, well, not much. There was a bit of media at the time. Um, and very interestingly, actually, someone who was quite outspoken on Instagram then did a video apology um, when they got a lot of criticism from women um, mm -hmm. of them actually being part of the system by saying that. So in the paper, um, we did identify that the birth experience study originated from the idea of, um, came to us from the producers of Birth Time, who have done an amazing yes. documentary, Birth Time. I really suggest that people watch it. It gives a really good snapshot of what's happening in maternity care in Australia. Um, and it's still current, even though it's a, you know, a couple of years old. And um, they approached Hannah and said, you know, could we do maybe do a survey? And then we took that on board and, and I had just finished my PhD, so Hannah was like, well, Hazel, you, you, this, you could do this with me. And then we kind of made it bigger than Ben-Hur. Like, we didn't, we didn't know we were going to get nearly 9,000 women complete the survey. We had 12,000 women actually um, uh, participate in the survey and, and, and nearly 9,000 actually complete it, which is just, these numbers are bigger than maternity experience surveys in both the UK, in the US, and they have a much larger population than us. Um, so... One of the criticism was that because of it going out through birth time and then, you know, putting media out about it at the time when we were looking for um, people to do the survey, that therefore we only got women who were in the birth activism space. I would love it if there were nearly 9,000 birth activists in Australia. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> yeah. Like, really, wouldn't that be amazing? So mm. no, <laughs> they weren't only birth activists. And some of this came from obstetricians um, making statements about this. Great for you because, you know, actually we had a lot of women who had private obstetric care do our survey, have a look at our numbers. So I did mm. put a post out on our own birth experience study um, Facebook page that had a little bit of a summary of actually what our numbers were. Um, and in a, in a, paper that we, 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 we've um, just submitted to a journal, we've actually put in really detailed, like how many Facebook adverts we did, what was the reach, what was the um, amount of clicks that we had, like, you know, I put all mm. that in there, like if, you know, maybe we should have put that in the Obstetric Violence paper, we didn't, you know, you don't know what you don't know at the time, um, yeah. but we have put that in, in in future papers, just so people can really understand, and actually a lot of researchers are coming to me saying, how did you get those numbers? Something that you'd mentioned earlier, the fact that people don't necessarily associate with something like obstetric violence happening here in Australia. 
And we sort of push it over there and say it happens in these sort of developing countries. Um, except when I think, or, or maybe even earlier generations in Australia, because when I think of my grandmother, I absolutely see obstetric violence throughout her births. And something interesting, actually, that I read in your, in your study was that you say um, that your study says our national plan to end violence against women and children 2022 to 2032 there was no mention of obstetric violence so why is australia not recognizing this despite well now your evidence i think it's just not been on the agenda like when they think about violence against women and there's some fantastic stuff in that in that national plan um that really does look at you know violence against Mm -hmm. women and children it looks more at either institutional violence or family violence and and um and partner violence and and i'm not taking the spotlight off that at all like seriously and as a feminist i think it's it's shocking we lose way too many you know what one woman a week in australia to 63 women last year just in domestic violence Yeah. yeah exactly so um i'm not trying to take the spotlight off that but i do think that obstetric violence needs to be included in that national plan and certainly in any woman's health agenda that that needs to be part of it because there are massive impacts that this happens to, that, that, that occurs for women. You know, we, we know with birth trauma, if women have experienced birth trauma, and I see obstetric violence sitting underneath the umbrella mm. of birth trauma. So some women may have had birth trauma but not experienced obstetric violence. But obstetric violence is pervasive, so it kind of spreads through all the other areas of birth trauma. But it's one that's even... I think it's just like an extra level because you lose all trust. When yeah. someone has done those things to you, it's in, in a position of power and therefore it has such an impact. Um, and so then that, you know, that then trickles on to perinatal mental health issues, um, PTSD, which looks very different, uh, childbirth PTSD than it does in the, in clinical PTSD. So there, are, there is an impact to it and it impacts women in their mothering and then their future birth choices everything like it impacts everything about them you know there's having ptsd when you your baby is asleep but you're reliving what happened to Mm. you that's ptsd and it's not always picked up so it's it has a it has a massive impact and i think we need to recognize recognize that but also on the flip side of that we need to look at well what is the antidote to it like you know what do we do rather than just saying it's here and this is a problem and and i do believe we need to recognize it we need to have it on the national agenda um we need to have it with um we need to have legislation against obstetric violence and there are some moves towards it so our research has led us to um as as hannah and i as researchers to speak with politicians um and there's the wonderful emma in um new south Wales parliament who has come out it was a statement that she's going to be looking at drafting a bill against obstetric violence yeah. in the new south wales government and we had a wonderful conversation with her she brought it up in the new south wales and um, budget briefings as well um so you know i think it's people just haven't been aware of it i also worry that some people won't want to offend we don't want to offend our obstetric colleagues or our midwifery colleagues they're meant to be seen as you know good people and, and as healers and we you know we are we are very good people but always within good people there are some people that don't do a good job or Mm. they're stretched to the point where they don't do a good job or really they just shouldn't be doing that job anymore 
and we need to be able to have access for that to be actually medical negligence and there needs to be actions and our human rights laws um and only what three of our states have human or territories have human rights laws new south wales doesn't have one um actually mention the um you know it's, it's a human rights violation if you do something against your consent but it's very difficult to bring that up through court uh, and and to act against that so we actually need further legislation in there and i think people are a bit frightened about it but i think it's important i think we need to um you know elevate it to that level do you think there's an element as well of like us deeming things as just birth so oh well you know that's what happens in birth like you, yeah, I you think get a or you get a vaginal examination. That's just what happens. That yeah. that should be expected. You leave your dignity at the door, you know, let the experts do what they do. Um and then I also thought about so if I was looking at parallels, I was having this conversation with my sister, she's a lawyer, she's a prosecutor. Yeah. And I was having this conversation with her last night because I said I see a lot of parallels when I look at the definitions of domestic violence. So traditionally people just thought domestic violence was physical. Um, but it's actually economical, threatening, coercive, emotional, psychological, like th- there are so many layers to domestic violence. And I think we can see that in birth. So unless it is physical, like you're being held down and forced forceps, um, you know, I've, I've heard of that story before. Um, or, you know, uh, that woman in the state, uh, yeah, that Latina woman in the States, I've forgotten her name off the top of my head, but who was screaming no to the episiotomy, but then was cut a midline piece ought to be about right down to her anus. Um, and so these physical things, it's really easy to see the, the violent element in it. But when it's something like a vaginal examination being given without, say, a woman's consent, that seems like it's a little bit harder to talk about in terms of being a, under the umbrella of obstetric violence because that just happens in birth. That's expected. We're looking for cervical dilation. Um, would you agree yeah, definitely. I think we can the... we can pathologize and we can normalize obstetric yes. violence acts. But see, the thing is, I've I've seen the other side, and if there was mm. no other side, then you wouldn't need to you wouldn't see that there's a problem. Um, but as a continuity care midwife, as a midwife mm. that did home births, actually, I know birth can be amazing. I know birth can be healing. I know birth can be empowering. And I know that women can make decisions and they can be the one that makes decisions during birth. And even when things are not going to the woman's um, initial plan or the the, the type of birth that she wants and things have to change, that can still be done in a respectful way. I know that can happen because the opposite side of such a violence is respectful maternity care. And so to say that we, we normalize violence means that we don't think that every woman deserves respectful maternity care. And I think that should be the, the, the most important point with all this is that mm. every woman, depending on, doesn't matter on their background, the country they're from, the language they speak, um, their ethnicity, their belief systems, doesn't matter what that is. Their sexual orientation doesn't matter. Mm. Every woman and birthing person deserves respectful maternity care. So when we say that we normalise violence, I would then say to people, then does that mean that women don't deserve respectful maternity care? And then they're like, well, no, women deserve respectful maternity care. Well, then that means they don't deserve violence. 
Yeah. Because that is the opposite. I believe all women should be able to access maternity care, one that is free from abuse, free from disrespect, and free from violence. And I think as healthcare providers, we become so much more aware these days about trauma-informed care, about the impact of trauma coming into the maternity system. But unfortunately, what we're seeing in our survey and we're working on these, on these findings is actually women with trauma who come to the maternity services actually usually come out even more traumatised. That's not yeah. right. <laughs> That's not what we should be doing. Every woman, even if she's had trauma, deserves respectful maternity care. So I think I always try and flip it that way when people start saying, well, you know, it's normal to, and actually my mum said to me about her own birthing experiences, or oh, you leave your dignity at the door. Yeah. And you know, that just sit with, that just sat with me for a while until, you know, I was a midwife and thinking, no, you keep your dignity all mm. the way through. If you're leaving your dignity at the door, that shouldn't be out of choice. That's because it's being taken off you. You should keep your dignity. You should be treated respectfully. And with vaginal examinations, it's a bit tricky. And I think I'm kind of yeah, stepping out of the out of the norm with, with making these conversations. But that's only because I've analysed the data and read all those comments that, yes, a vaginal examination can be routine, but it can also be a sexual assault. And we don't mm. minimise rape or sexual assault we know that's to do with the vagina or other orifices but it's to do with power and we know it's to do with those intimate areas well so are vaginal examinations they can be mm. um done in a myriad of different ways they can be quick they can be uh, slow they can be they can be gentle they can be rough and that's not down to the woman that's actually down to the healthcare provider because they've got that power there's a power imbalance every step of that vaginal examination with a woman lying flat on her back and the healthcare provider towering over them, or even if they're sitting, they're towering over them. It is a complete power dynamic. And often things happen in vaginal examinations that, that the woman may have given consent to begin with, but they may have then withdrawn their consent, but the healthcare provider doesn't withdraw their fingers. They're like, oh, just a bit more. I just need to go a bit further. I just need to feel this. I just need to. All those justs are without consent. Mm. Once the woman says, no, you should be out of there. Or other things happen. Like they'll rupture membranes without consent. Or the one that is really makes people think is start getting consent for a vaginal examination when the woman is in between contractions and then staying in there when a woman has a contraction. Mm. You never actually ask that consent. Try doing that, saying to a woman, you know, when you have those really, really painful contractions and you want to move around and, you know, it's really difficult and, and I do all these things to support you. I actually now want you lying flat on your bed and I'm going to be doing a vaginal examination so you can't move during that time i think i think a lot of women would be like no thank you you can just do it between and not 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 during but often um you know practitioners are there and they're like i just want to i just want to feel what the cervix is doing when you're contracting then go and read your anatomy and physiology textbook because you don't need to be testing that on women in the most vulnerable position because that then turns into a sexual assault and i'm very unpopular for using the term sexual assault but i actually think we need to give women back the power after we've taken it off them so for so long and they're not the be all and end all there's no research actually that shows routine vaginal examinations are actually necessary or beneficial for um for, for labor care and there are lots mm. of other ways become a become a better watcher of women listen to mm. their voices watch their mm. actions look out for that purple line like actually mm. be in the room and watch what they're doing rather than being outside and just popping into a vaginal examination yeah that's really interesting that <laughs> you just talked about that because i just thought then oh i was 
in my first birth forced on my back and told vaginal examinations could only be done during contractions that I didn't want and that were extremely horrific and painful and awful and I never ever wanted one again that's funny with sort of like along the lines of what you were saying earlier like reading reading what the women have said in your study and maybe recognizing that oh this happened to me um but I did find uh you know I I would like to think I'm not desensitized. I would never use that word, but I've read a lot about this stuff. And, you know, prior to me entering the birth world, I was really interested in pursuing a career in um, helping victims from human trafficking and that sort of sexual trauma. Um, So that was sort of like my background, like coming into the birth world. Uh, And reading a lot of this, uh, if I can, maybe just a disclaimer here, I will read one or two that you have that I've highlighted uh, particular particularly on the topic of sexual assault during birth um I was vaginally examined multiple times against my express consent I kept screaming at them to take their hands out of my vagina and they would not I had a midwife screaming in my face that I would kill my baby if I pushed with my body that just seems insane to me and it also seems insane that this that this is happening and sort of dismissed as birth. You know, we have, we have to do this regardless of what you say, because it's in the safety of your baby. And it's sort of like masked under that, that term. Yeah. And I read that they're harrowing, harrowing. I read these comments essentially um, that these women have left. And I, it's like my brain just doesn't want to believe that this is happening. But then I also read some other comments and think, oh, yeah, that, that happened to me or that happened to someone I know and they have no idea that this was incredibly violating. They may feel that way, but they don't, they're not able to sort of acknowledge it in that way. Um, so I really see the value in, in this research and in this topic in particular. I did want to ask you in regards to the obstetric violent terminology, and you, I think you have touched on this, but... Anytime it has been said, and I know that you've received criticisms and things like that, but anytime that it has been said, uh, it is met, even when I've said it in my circles, it is met with like a little bit of hostility. Um, And I've heard it being called a provocative term. That was one of them. Why is it deemed as provocative or up for debate? I think it comes down to this um, identifying health professionals as good people. And, you know, still nurses and midwives are right at the top of the most trusted professions. And we like to think that we put our lives uh, and our, our, um, yeah, our health into doctors' hands as well. So then to have someone use to, to be violent or to use the term such a violence goes against that, goes against you know, people go into this profession to help people. And and I think I think it's a challenge, you know, and I and I yeah. you know, I think that it's it's okay to recognise it as provocative, but then take a step back and say sometimes um health providers will say things because of their unconscious bias or because they've got fear of being litigated if something goes wrong. Mm. Um and then then potentially that's why they're using coercive control to try and to try and make that happen 
Um, but in other cases, such as, you know, painful vaginal examinations, if this is what the doctor has always done, or this is the way the midwife has always done it, if this is the way that they were modeled to do it by their senior colleagues when they were younger, and this is what they saw to be done, so this is this is how yes. they do it, they can rationalize it somehow. There's always mm-hmm. a rationale for it. You know, I've seen um, one doctor, you know, with both hands, both fingers in there doing like this windscreen wiping thing, and I looked shocked. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what are you doing? And uh, and you could see the shock on my face. I then explained why and had a very good explanation on his term on why he did that. It, mm. He never actually got consent for it. Um, and interestingly, when I looked at the woman, the woman was looking away and the partner was looking away. So something mm. was happening at that point that they were disengaging from what he was doing. But if it's the way he's always done it and he can see the benefits of it, then this is why I do it. Um, but if we don't recognize, if we don't go, all right, you don't like the term. Yes, I agree. We come into our professions with an aim to help. But then there are situations, there are institutional dramas, there's there is short staff, there's lots of issues. And there are things that we just do because we believe in them we don't think about the impact of that. And vaginal examinations is one of those that's just never really been talked about. It's just, just keep it under wraps. This is what yeah. we do. Um, it gives us it gives us this magic number we then, then decide the rest of labor on. And uh, without really thinking actually, what, what are you doing when you do that? And I think it's okay for it to be provocative, but instead let's take a step back and go, well, let's just recognize it's there. This is the term we've got. It's a recognized term by the United Nations, been legislated about in other countries. So let's not go changing the term. It is what it is. It's separate from birth trauma. So we can't call it that. It is under that umbrella of birth trauma, but it is a violent act and it's about power. It's about control and it's dehumanizing. It's violating and it makes the woman feel powerless. So I think we need to have a term for it. And I think it's it's the right term. And if it makes people feel uncomfortable, I'm all right with that. Because yeah. if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it shouldn't make you feel comfortable. It should make you go, yes. oh, I don't like that idea. Okay, let's lean into that and mm. go, why don't you like why don't we like it? Let's read the paper and go, those stories are horrific. Because then that can be an agent for change. Yes. And we don't want to sit in people arguing about the term of sexual violence. Let's recognize it is here in Australia. We have the evidence. And now what can we do to move move past that? What do we do to then bring in respectful maternity care? That is mm. the next step. That is the most important step. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth when you talked about being uncomfortable, but how important that actually is when talking about obstetric violence. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. So I wanted to ask you, was there anything, anything that surprised you in the results of your study? I think those terms that were used for vaginal examinations, you know, I, you know, I've been a midwife for many years, you know, I've, I've done um, in hospitals, I've done more vaginal examinations than I ever did at home. Um, and I understand the routine of it. And I'd never heard it described or read it described in the way that it was. And, and I think that's why I pull, pulled out all those terms, because when I pulled out all those terms, I was like, whoa, like, this is something more. And so for me to then label it as, and, and my research team, which is Lauren Keedle, my husband, and, and Professor Hannah Darling on this particular paper, for us to then actually use those words, sexual assault, in the paper, that was a big, it was it was a big step to do, but the right one. But that, that took a lot of reflection um, on my part to really read those comments and realise what, what a vagina examination can actually be like for women. 
Yeah. I... In conclusion, I think this is a really good question to wrap up with in terms of not only obstetric violence and what can happen in the birth room with that power and balance and everything, but also with the challenge of VBAC. It is really difficult for women to advocate for themselves. You know, a lot of the time it's like, well, just say no, but it's actually not actually that simple. Um, And yeah, that can be really frustrating to hear as well or be told because there is so much more to it than just saying the words no. Do you have any advice for women to advocate for themselves when they are faced in these difficult, with these difficult challenges in the birth room? When you're actually in the birthing room, when you're in labour, it it is very difficult, especially if you're there with without, you know, epidurals or pain relief on board, because your body isn't made to have your your analytical brain working. And so, yet you can use terms such as stop but that doesn't mean it's going to stop. So I think mm. from you've got to plan that much further ahead. And for me, it's about picking your team. Who is the best team? Who is going to be there in that room with you to be able to, even if they're not able to go, can you stop what you're doing right now? Even if they can just say, can we just have a minute to speak, to talk about it on our own? But that might be enough to diffuse a situation for a healthcare provider to leave and to allow, uh, to facilitate a discussion with your team and with yourself mm. just that space so who is going to be there it's a lot of pressure to put that on a partner because um, a lot of the coercive control will also happen to the partner tell your wife that if she continues with this her baby will die well there's no partner out there that wants their baby to die either so (laughs) you know like it's hard to put that on there so think about your wider team is it a doula is it um continued care with a midwife um, is it a private obstetrician that you that, that you trust and that you've worked well with in the, and has cared for you well in the past? And so, like, I would really put that down to who is your team um, and who can then help you advocate in that moment because that is really challenging. Um, like, I, I couldn't speak. I was using gas when I was in, in labour and it just felt like my mouth was full of cotton wool. There was nothing I could say. I did manage to say the word chocolate at one point to my husband. Um, <laughs> and then when he went to take some, I was able to say the word no. Because <laughs> in my head, I had a whole plan in between contractions. I was going to eat half the block now and then I'll eat half a block once I've had the baby. Um, but it, <laughs> I it love came that. No. <laughs> so to actually advocate and then, you know, it was, it was challenging. Mm. I had to it was really difficult to do it puts you into a different space so who's your team have those people around you make them really aware of what's important to you um but also get knowledge because knowledge is power like learn that information explore what what you want when birth goes this way but also explore what you want when birth goes that way so that you're not you're not shocked by it but you can then say, actually, these are the things that I want to happen if birth goes this way. And, and I explore all that in the in the book as well about looking at the different types of birth plans and stuff that are in there. So choose your team and get get knowledgeable. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate this so much, Dr. Keedle. Thank you so much. I Honestly, I don't think I could say that enough. I have loved this conversation with you. I've been just so enthralled by everything that you've been saying. And I appreciate the work that you're doing in not only the VBAC space, but also in obstetric violence. They're two both really important topics. And um, yeah, you're changing the world one paper at a time, I tell you. One woman at a time. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.